was recently driving, and, and one of my sons saw a, a shop on the side of the road. It was a smoke shop. And he said, kind of surprisingly, smoke shop? Why would anyone smoke? Don't they know that's going to kill you? And I thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity to try to, to teach a little bit. And so I, I, I tried to explain, well, you know, people smoke because it makes them feel better at the time. And often they decide to choose to find something to make them feel better right now and not necessarily worry about what's happening in the future. I said, that's often the problem in our life. That's when we make wrong choices. It's often because we're just thinking about the pleasure right now, and we're not considering what's going to happen in the future. In the passage in Proverbs this evening, that's exactly what Solomon is trying to teach his son. To, to be aware of the future consequences of specifically the sin of adultery. If you would open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 20. In this section, Solomon begins again with a, an introductory reminder, an encouragement for the son to heed uh, his father's and his mother's teaching and instruction, and then specifically focuses in on a warning about adultery. So let's begin with that introductory reminder of the value of parental instruction in verses 20 to 23. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Begins by a, a reminder, the kind of language we've seen several times in the book of Proverbs, but, but also the kind of language that we see elsewhere in Scripture in talking about how God's people are to respond to His Word. And I think I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, that, that when we see these kinds of reminders of the Father's instruction or the Mother's teaching, the assumption is this is their instruction of God's law. God's command, that they are fulfilling the responsibility God has given them to teach their children his commandments and his principles and his precepts. And so here the son is reminded to observe and not forsake the teaching, rather, instead to, to bind them continually on your heart, to tie them to the very center of who you are. Make it so that in everything you do, it's there. And every decision you make and every thought you have, the commandments, the instruction, the teaching is right there with you. Tie them around your neck. Perhaps an indication of, of care. Uh, I know I, I have traveled at different times overseas, and the first few times I traveled overseas, uh, someone encouraged me to, to get uh, a little passport necklace of sorts. Something tied around your neck, you could hold your passport, your money. And the idea was you could kind of wear it and go under your shirt. And it's a lot harder to steal it there than it is most other places you could have it. And so you're not going to lose it. You know it's there and it's going to be protected. And I think here this is a reminder. Tie these things around your neck. Take care of them. Keep them close to you. Treasure them. Why? Because of what they do for you in verses 22 and 23. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. Now, you might have a translation, and you might even see in the NASB, there's a note that the they 
might is actually a she. That, that when you walk, she will guide you. When you sleep, she will watch over you. When you wake, she will talk to you. I think this is a reference to the instruction and teaching of the, the parents. It might be that, that the she is specifically used here as kind of uh, what we often see in, in Proverbs, wisdom personified in a sense. Lady wisdom coming into play. And potentially, Solomon does that because he's about to describe another she, the adulterous woman. And here he's saying, you want a real companion? You want someone who will be with you when you go to sleep? And someone who will be with you when you wake up? The person you need to be thinking about is Lady Wisdom. You want my instruction to be there with you. You want your parents' teachings to be there with you. And the language, I think, would indicate all the time. When you walk about, when you sleep, when you awake, it's constant. It's constantly there with you. And what is it doing? Well, it's described as guiding, leading, taking you through potentially a difficult path and taking you to the other side, of watching over you, guarding you, keeping you, protecting you, and then of talking to you, of teaching you, of instructing you. And, and the language is uh, the, the, for the, the word talking to you uh, almost brings up the idea of meditation. It's a kind of constant inward dialogue. I think the imagery is, is the idea that as everything I'm doing, it's as if I'm constantly hearing my, my parents' instruction. Uh, I thought of this again recently. Uh, I was buying something and one of my sons said, why don't you ever use money? Why do you always use a card? And when they said that, immediately what popped into my mind was something my dad instilled in me over and over and over again. He would always say, Ben, Never use this as a credit card. Always use this as a convenience card. You use it so that you don't have to worry about cash, so you don't have to carry it, but never use it for credit. It's only there for a convenience. So as soon as I asked that question, that's immediately what I thought of. Because that teaching was in me, and I dutifully passed it on to my sons and taught them that same truth. With the idea being, it's constantly coming back up. I'm hearing it over and over again. As I'm facing situations, it's as if I'm saying, I know, I know what my mother told me about this. I remember what my father said about this kind of situation. It's talking to me throughout the day. In verse 23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And again, I think the emphasis here is, is both guidance and protection. Because when it's dark, you can't always see what's around. It's a lot easier to stumble. It's a lot easier to get lost. And so with a light, you now have a sense of what lies in the path before me and where should I go. And the instruction that you receive, the instruction that you are to give to your children is meant to be guidance and protection for them, showing right versus wrong, showing them the consequences that come down the path. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. And that sentiment is, is not something we, we tend to think of in our day. Reproof and correction, we don't like that. We don't want to be told, this is wrong, stop it. Change the way you live. And far too often, our children come under the impression that when we're telling them, stop doing that or don't do this, we're, we're trying to kill their fun. And yet, what is Solomon reminding us here? No. It's not meant to kill your fun. It's meant to give you life. 
It's the way of life. Death and destruction lie elsewhere. And that's why I'm giving you this reproof. That's why I'm offering you this correction. Because in these reproofs, in these corrections, are found true life. And in particular, the instruction that's given here is meant to keep you, verse 24, from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. It's meant to guard you, to watch over you, and especially to guard you from the evil, unfaithful woman, the adulteress. And here, the adulteress language is something we've seen before in Proverbs. Something I've said, probably the most helpful way to think of it is the outside woman, the woman who's outside of God's intention for what uh, your woman would be, which is only inside of marriage. And so sometimes it's translated the foreign woman, but I don't think it's necessarily saying foreign as meaning outside of the nation of Israel. It's meaning foreign to you, outside to you, someone that's not your spouse, someone that's not your wife. And so don't allow this woman to fool you with her smooth tongue, smooth speech, smooth and flattering. And yet the father, in a sense, would also, I think, be indicating slippery and therefore dangerous. And so do not be deceived from her. Allow the commandment to be what guides you. Listen to the commandment and the instruction, not to her. Verse 25, the command, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Beauty here is certainly an outward beauty, an attraction. Proverbs would tell us that that true beauty doesn't reside only on the outside. That true beauty comes with good character. But this is an evil woman. And so her beauty is only surface level. And yet, because we are sensual beings driven by our senses, we are attracted to outward beauty. And the danger is that we can be, allow our heart to begin to desire her beauty. Sin begins in the heart. And we know from Scripture that Solomon isn't saying, keep it in your heart and don't let it get out. He's saying, don't even let it into your heart. Because as Jesus would say, to lust after a woman in your heart is to have already committed adultery with her in your heart. So don't even begin to allow your heart to lust after her. Nor let her capture you with her eyelids. So I think there is... In this verse, a reminder of the connection between sinful sexual desires and our sight. That we can allow our sight to fuel and feed sexual desires. Or we can seek to guard what we look at. So that we won't allow that desire to be in our heart and to be cultivated in our heart. Be careful what we put before our eyes. You may have heard the phrase before, it doesn't hurt just to look. And Solomon would say, well, actually it might. And so be very careful with what you do. Or perhaps if I could say it this way, it's not just harmless flirting. It's not just a little fun with each other at work. Now, I, I confess, 
I may be naive in these things, but I was shocked in some ways uh, during the whole uh, Me Too movement in the fact that so many people were talking about the way that life works in, in the world of business and in society. And what was fascinating to me is so many people who were defending it by saying, it's kind of fun to have a little sexual tension at work. You know, yeah, the way I look at it, a man puts his hand on this woman's knee and she can decide to take it off and that's perfectly fine. And there's no harm, no foul in that kind of a thing. That's just the way that that dynamics work. And so it's not surprising in some ways that you see so many women who said, man, I feel like I was abused. Because the culture was such that seemed to treat it as if, well, just a little bit of play isn't really harmful. And what we found is, without the boundary that Scripture gives, it's so easy to fall into abuse. Where Scripture would say, don't even start. Don't even begin joking about those things. Don't even begin the physical touches. Because don't even begin to desire it in your heart. Kill it. At the very moment, it rises up. I want to be careful, but I think this might be a, an interesting verse to try to, to think through another issue in our day. The language that he uses here, let her capture you with her eyelids, it seems to indicate that she's put on makeup around her eyes with the intention of alluring someone and attracting someone. And in our day, I think we, we, have, we have overcorrected by functionally acting as though the way that you dress is, perf- is completely irrelevant. The only issue is the, the man and whether or not he lusts. And I think this, this verse would be a good reminder that there is a way that you can dress so that you are intending to attract sexual attraction. And I think Solomon would certainly be saying, it's wrong, because who's the woman who's doing that? It's an evil and adulterous woman who's trying to draw sexual attraction. And yet Solomon doesn't say, well, I mean, he couldn't help it. Look at how she was dressed. What's he say? You're responsible for how you act in light of that. And so he is certainly not saying in any way, hey, it's not a problem, look at what she did. But he also isn't saying what she's doing is perfectly fine. That both are being held responsible for their actions in this. And the rest of the chapter, really what what Solomon does is he now begins to say why you need to make sure you do not allow this to begin in your heart. He says, don't even begin to desire, don't even begin down this road, because adultery will lead inevitably to harsh and lasting consequences. In verse 25, uh, or verse 26, he points out the severity of these consequences. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Now, the first part of 26 is very difficult to understand. And it's because if you have your NASB, you can kind of see why. In your NASB, when you see italics, like the italics there, one is reduced, that's the translator saying 
we put these words in to try to help you understand what's going on. So if you take those words out, you have a, a sense of, of really what the verse would read like. The verse would read, for an account of a harlot to a loaf of bread. And that has led to, to two primary ways to understand this. And you might have a translation that takes the opposite view of what the NASB does here. The NASB basically takes it as saying that the, the, if you pursue a prostitute or a harlot, it takes you down to nothing. All you have left is a loaf of bread. It destroys you. And, and is that a biblical truth? I, I think the passage it fits well with that passage. It, it, it does make sense that way. Other translations take it this way. The price of a harlot is a loaf of bread, but an adulteress hunts for the precious life. And at first, that understanding might seem kind of wrong. It almost seems as if Solomon's saying, I mean, a prostitute's not a big deal. A prostitute's just a loaf of bread, but an adulteress is, is really significant. And there's two ways I think you could understand it if that's, that's the way it's translated. One would be to say Solomon's simply highlighting how bad the adulteress is, not necessarily excusing pursuing prostitution. And the adulteress here in this verse is different from the adulteress we encountered earlier. The adulteress here is another man's wife, not just an outside woman, specifically another man's wife. And, and he's basically saying, this is really, really bad. This is bad, but this is even worse. And, and again, that kind of fits because later on in this passage, he's going to compare it to stealing. And certainly, as we get there, we're not going to say, Solomon's saying, stealing's perfectly fine, just don't commit adultery. Any more than he'd be saying, pursuing a prostitute's perfectly fine, just don't commit adultery. It might just be saying, this is bad, so just imagine how much worse this is. I think probably even a better way to understand it might be this. As someone thinks about, well, a prostitute costs something but not that significant. I have to in some way pay for this, but it's a loaf of bread. At first you might think, well, a married woman's a better deal because there's no payment involved at all. And so, in fact, the prostitute is worse than the adulterous woman. And yet Solomon would say, yes, certainly, initially, there may be no payment. But at the end, it's an incredible payment. Because... It will cost you your life. And I confess, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how to take it. I think I lean towards the, the, the NASB's understanding of it. And in a sense, both of this are intended to say it's going to cost you a lot. The prostitute's going to take you down to all you have left is a loaf of bread. And the adulteress is actually going to go after your Life. And notice the language that's used. Hunts for the precious life. That you are this unwitting prey. Happily going along, not realizing a predator is out to get you. Now certainly that does not make you excused in any way. This passage is very clear. You're completely at fault for this. Because you should have been on guard. You should have realized She's not really caring for you. She's actually working to destroy you. In verses 27 to 29, Solomon points out that not only is this other consequences going to be severe, 
they also are inevitable. You can't avoid them. Verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? And the imagery is basically as if I'm trying to to transfer hot coals. And so instead of putting them in a pan or taking a tong or something like that, I just kind of, I'll just put it in my shirt real fast and carry it over. And if someone did that, what would you expect would happen? Not anything good. Because your clothes are going to get burned. It's a really bad idea. It's a really dumb idea. Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And there might even be a little bit of an escalation going on here. Moving from from clothes to direct contact with fire. Now, I don't take a lot of time on this, but you might have read this verse before and thought, don't people walk on coals and not burn their feet? And I'm not telling you this so that you can do it. But my understanding is the way you do that is you light the fire for a little bit, let it burn down, and then you begin to get kind of a layer of ash going on. You beat it down so it spreads itself out, put a little water on your feet, and, and the coals don't transfer heat very quickly. And so if you walk carefully across, it doesn't have time to actually burn your feet, whereas if you stood there, it was. But Solomon's not talking about tricks. Right? Solomon's talking about if you stand in coals of fire, what will happen? And the answer is, you'll get scorched. It will burn you. There's no way to avoid it. And his conclusion, verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. In a sense, for someone to look at another man's wife and to say, wow, she's really hot. He needs to understand she's much hotter than you could ever imagine. You will not go unpunished. You will get scorched. Verse 30 to verses 33, he points out the the fact that this, the consequences are lasting. They are inevitable and they are lasting. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. What's Solomon saying here? If, if you find someone and they're hungry, and really the word for hungry is almost famished. It's as if there's literally no food. And they say, I was starving. That's why I stole this food. We look at that person and we say, man, I, I, I can understand that. I could see really struggling with that if I was in that situation. And so I, I, I know, you know, you're not like an idiot. You, you were, you were almost forced into this reality. And so there's a sympathy that goes down to that. And yet, even at that level, as he says in verse 31, if he's found, once he's discovered, you don't let him off the hook. Even this, this act that's understandable, that person's still going to have to fully pay for what they have done. And that's the language he must repay sevenfold. Because actually the law said up to fivefold. It seems that most often it was probably more like double. You repay what you stole, and then for the, the punishment for it, you've got to give up what you tried to take. So sevenfold was beyond it. But 
you understand scripturally, seven is, is often the number of completion. And so I think sevenfold here is basically saying, you will completely repay. Everything that you are required to owe, you will repay. And it will be very devastating. He must give all the substance of his house. You have to fully repay, even for doing something that's understandable. And the next verse he says, but adultery is not even understandable. It's idiotic. Look at verse 32. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He's brainless. He's a fool. You don't look at that person and say, man, I can understand you were driven to him. You were starving and you wanted some bread. Because you can't survive without food. You can certainly survive without your neighbor's wife. And as he goes on in verse 32, he who would destroy himself does it. If, if I were to come to church on Sunday and you saw that you know, one of my fingers was gone and I said, you know, I was, I was slicing some food and I just was, you know, I got distracted. One of the kids yelled something and all of a sudden I just, I hit my finger. You'd say, man, I feel, I mean, that's, that's really hard, Ben. Probably should be a little careful with the knife. I mean, it's dangerous, but I understand what you're doing. But if instead I came up and said, yeah, I was playing this game in which I put my hand out and swiped it down and tried to see how long I could wait until I could pull my hand out. And I lost a finger that way. You'd say, you're an idiot. Why would you harm yourself like that? And that's exactly what Solomon's saying. What are you doing? Why would you harm yourself like that. Because the results, verse 33, wounds and disgrace he will find. The thief faced financial ramifications. The adulterer will face physical and social consequences. He will find wounds, lashes, and disgrace, and his reproach will not be blotted out. That there will be a right shame that comes upon this person. And, and I confess, as I, I wrestled with this passage this week, I don't know that that's fully true in our culture right now. That, that our culture does not have the type of, of shame and reproach that it should for sins like this that are so destructive to society. So we have to understand that, that Solomon's talking about a culture of what Israel should have been. That in the, the culture that Israel was supposed to have, in a believing, faithful community, there is a lasting disgrace and reproach that comes with this kind of sin. And it is a permanent stain. His reproach will not be blotted out. Why? Verses 30, 34 to 35 say, because of the husband. For jealousy enrages a man. I think this is a reminder that there is a good kind of jealousy. A man should be very jealous of his wife. Because they are meant just for each other. And so if you sleep with another man's wife, he should have a righteous anger. Now this passage might be indicating he might go beyond a righteous anger. But certainly he will be 
angry, and he will not accept anything short of full payment. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied though you give many gifts or many bribes. You, you, you won't be able to work your way out of this. And it may even be that Solomon's indicating the penalty for adultery is death. And there's no way that this man's going to let you off the hook with anything short of that. You could offer him anything you want. But he's going to want you to pay to the full. Because of how greatly you violated him. So Solomon here warns us the incredible consequences of adultery. If I could just challenge us in two ways as we, we think about what he says here. The first is, first is an important reminder to us that we see over and over again in Proverbs. But I, I think it's so important for us to get that parents, you need to lead in your home. That God has given you the responsibility to communicate God's truth to your children. So that they would have your teaching and your instruction to protect them and to guide them. And I think a passage like this would tell us that before our children encounter sexual temptation, we need to have prepared them for it. And unfortunately, we live in a day in which they are going to be, I think, encountering sexual temptation at a much earlier age than perhaps you did when you were growing up. That means we've got to make sure that we're preparing them, certainly in age-appropriate ways, but warning them so they would know of the consequences, of the great danger that these kinds of sins bring about. Secondly, that we ourselves would count the cost. And we live in a world in which buying things and returning things have never been easier. And in so many places where you buy something, you'll see, you know, no hassle buying, uh, worry-free purchasing, uh, you know, no hassle returns, um, and so satisfaction guaranteed. And you can just make a choice and then decide, I don't want it, and cancel it, and you're good to go as if nothing ever happened. And Solomon here would be telling us, sexual sin does not work that way. You can't go back. You can't cancel it. You can't return it. Which means we've got to consider the cost before we act. Right now, my son, when he thinks about smoking, his thought is immediately, it's not worth it. That could kill you. And my hope is that if he ever sees an advertisement or have, has a friend or someone who comes up and says, hey, do you want to start smoking? He would say, no, it's not worth it. Yeah, there might be some initial satisfaction, but in the end, it's devastating. And what we want our children, we want ourselves, is that anytime sexual temptation comes up before us, we'll immediately respond, it's not worth it. It might seem as if, man, she really gets me. It's going to give me a lot of pleasure. He really understands me. We need each other. But we need to understand, no matter how good it might seem, it's not 
worth it. That you play with the fire of sexual sin, you will get scorched. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would protect us would help us to, to see the realities of how significant adultery is. May we not start down that path. And Lord, we pray that you would protect our families and our children. Lord, help us to take actions, to protect them, to guard their eyes, to guard their hearts, to give them the instruction of your word that would be with them as they walk about, that would guide and protect them as they sleep, as they awake, that they would be constantly reminded of your truth, so that they would not listen to the allures, allurements of this world, they would not be deceived by the fleeting pleasures of sin. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.